baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Here in California, when it rains, it pours. And pours, and keeps on pouring. But how much good is all that water really doing us? There is a problem in our urbanized areas where this water is running off. It is taking uh, pollutants with it. I'm Keith Menconi. This is In Depth. And this week, we're going to dive into that question in two different ways. Coming up in the second half of the show, we're going to hear about new research that suggests that this wet winter won't necessarily save us from a fiery summer. A hot summer can just really dry things out to the point that the echo of the wet winter is is gone. But first up on the show, well, as you may have heard, we have gotten quite a bit of rain this year. So much so, in fact, that at this point, only 1% of the state is experiencing any form of drought. Of course, that is a world of difference from the historic drought conditions facing down the state just a few years ago. But even with the gains, there's growing concern that a lot of the water that's been falling from the sky is just going down the drain, out to sea, and essentially to waste. One estimate put the amount of rainfall diverted into the ocean in the LA region at 80%. And now calls are growing louder for more to be done to capture a bigger share of the rainfall and channel it into the state's thirsty water system. So, what more could be done? Well, earlier this week I raised that question, along with a couple of others, with two water experts. Here is that conversation. All right, and joining us on the show today, we have Heather Cooley. She is the director of research at the Pacific Institute, which is a water think tank with offices in Oakland. Heather, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Also on the show, we have Jennifer Pierre. She is the general manager for a group known as the State Water Contractors. They're an association of 27 public water agencies and have a bit of a focus on promoting water conservation and efficiency. Jennifer Pierre, thank you as well. Thanks for having me. Uh, I want to turn first to you, Heather. Help us understand how that could be, that so much of the water that we're getting right now isn't being funneled into our system. Well, I I think there's a couple things you need to separate. Um, First is is sort of the notion that all of the water that goes to to the sea is wasted, um, when in reality that water serves an important ecosystem function. Flooding is sort of a natural part of ecosystems. We need it. That's how we are able to even build our agricultural areas in the first place. So we're thinking about our rivers and streams. Um, There is a role and an importance of having flows. I I do think, though, if we look at our urban areas, in particular our coastal urban areas, um, there is a lot of water falling on them right now. San Francisco, Oakland, uh, Los Angeles. Um, There are a lot of opportunities in those areas to be capturing some of that urban runoff, which is in effect, you know, losing water, but also polluting our oceans, our rivers and our streams to be capturing that water and using it. We can either use it directly. We can use it to recharge groundwater. So I see a lot of opportunities there. Um, 
But I do think there is sort of a misunderstanding about the, the water that's going off the rivers and streams. And so I think it's important to sort of separate those issues. So if we're talking about saving water, what would you say, uh, Heather, is the degree of the problem? How, how big of a problem should we think of this, the amount of water that's going out to sea and not being captured? Well, I, I think there, there is a problem, as I mentioned, in our urbanized areas where, you know, this water is, is, is running off. It is taking uh, pollutants with it. It's taking oil. It's taking uh, uh, chemicals, fertilizers, et cetera, that's washing in and polluting our waterways. And it's important to sort of capture that water. It, it improves water quality. It helps to augment local supplies. It reduces flooding. Um, there is a real opportunity and a need. We've done some analysis, and just in the San Francisco Bay Area and, and in Southern California, the Los Angeles region, we find that there's an opportunity for capturing over 420,000 acre-feet of water, which is a significant amount of water. That's equivalent to what L.A. uses in a year. Um, so we see significant opportunities there. Um, we also see opportunities for, for water reuse and, and, importantly, opportunities for reducing our water demand. Uh, you know, we have a tendency, and historically we have focused on water supply. How do we build more supply? How do we build that next dam or raise the dam? Um, the reality is that we have built on all the best sites. We have over 1,500 dams in California. Uh, we capture a tremendous amount of water in them. We need to e spend an equal amount of attention thinking about demand and what ways we can reduce demand through water conservation and efficiency. All right. I want to toss the same question back to you, Jennifer. We were hearing a lot there about what could be done in the urban environment and then also the demand side of things. Is there anything else that you think that we should be keeping in mind? No, I, I agree that um, there's a lot of opportunity for local capture and reuse. And I think that's a really important part of California's water portfolio. But the water that's moving out under the Golden Gate Bridge right now um, represents, you know, water sources that supply 27 million Californias with water. And I think there are um, opportunities to be more efficient and effective with how we capture that water. Now, right now, we've got, you know, 170,000 acre, uh, excuse me, CFS moving under the Golden Gate Bridge. And no way are we going to capture all of that. But I think that we could, we need to be looking at ways where there are opportunities to take a, a larger piece of that when it's safe to do so, so that we can bolster um, those dry conditions that we know we're going to have around the corner. And Jennifer, for you, when we are picturing uh, the sorts of projects that you're talking about there, what, what, what should we be thinking about? Should we be thinking about big infrastructure projects, dams, catchment, or something else? Well, I think we have an existing infrastructure in the state water project. That's what um, my members use um, as one of their uh, water portfolio pieces. There's also, of course, this federal state uh, Central Valley project. But on the state water project side, uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity to be more efficient with how we use existing infrastructure. And I also think there are opportunities, um, including the California Water Fix project, the conveyance project, that absolutely need to be part of California's water future. Um, thinking about ways to be more efficient with our use, for example, and this would apply, I think, in a lot of places over the state, is better forecasting on reservoirs so that we can better balance um, flood conditions and, and flood operations with water supply capture looking at ways to safely um, export water when 
fish may not need that protection because, for example, outflows are this high or they're just not in the area, can we take advantage of that opportunity and move more water? And then, of course, do we have somewhere to put it down south? So those are the kind of the three things I would look at for the state water project in terms of um, taking better advantage of this really wet condition. Heather, I want to zero in on that issue of big infrastructure projects for a second. Of course, when we're talking about big water channels or dams used to catch water, you know, such projects are always accompanied with some level of controversy. A prime example, of course, being the Delta Water Tunnels Project, uh, recently downgraded from a two-tunnel plan to a one-tunnel plan. A lot of controversy still accompanying that. And the question that always comes up is, how will this project impact the environment, you know, needed as it may be? So in your view, how are we doing as a state in getting that balance right, the balance between developing our water infrastructure where needed while avoiding damage to the environment as much as possible? Well, I don't I don't think we're quite there yet. Uh, and in fact, if we look at our ecosystem and our Delta ecosystem is an example of that, there are tremendous challenges there. We're seeing continuous declines, in part because we're already taking too much water out of those systems. Um, you know, I, I do think, as I mentioned, there are, you know, nearly 1,500 dams in California and a huge amount of surface storage capacity already in place. So I think we're, we're, living a bit uh, in fantasy land, if we think that building one or two more reservoirs, above ground reservoirs, is going to solve our, our problems, we really, you know, that is that is very much 20th century thinking. We have 21st century challenges and we need 21st century solutions. So I, I, I do agree that there is an opportunity and a need to better manage groundwater, but we also need to be reducing our demands and we have tremendous opportunity to, to do that, both in our cities, and on our farms. Um, we need to be looking at water reuse. We need to be looking at stormwater capture. There are a lot of things we can do on these local supplies that very much take pressure off the Delta and off our rivers and streams. Jennifer, I want to turn some of those points back to you. Uh, in uh, preparing for this episode, I did hear a number of voices from people that were saying that kind of the law of diminishing returns would suggest that with the number of dams that we have at this point, you know, any new project is going to be fairly expensive and maybe only be used every couple of years. We, we're wasting some amount of water now, but, you know, next year when it's not raining so much, maybe that wouldn't actually have that higher rate of return. Where, where do you think we are on that balance of developing up to capture water versus, you know, what the capacity is for actual catchment? Well, um, in the State Water Project, I think there's um, two relatively recent storage projects built, one store, um, one above ground, Diamond um, Valley Reservoir, and, um, built by a Metropolitan Water District, and the Kern Water Bank, which is in the Kern County Water Agency's um, area. Both were filled to the brim in 2017 and certainly helped get us through last year and have, have kept the, um, California in a good condition. So I think there's been very good um, ROI on those investments made there. I think we're really focused now on the conveyance piece, and here's why. We know that, that we're not going to have our largest reservoir in the future, which is snowpack. It's going to be more precipitation. We're very lucky this year that we've had a lot of cold storms. Typically, atmospheric rivers are warm. It's going to come as precipitation, and we would have seen this expressed as a lot more runoff than we're even seeing today. If we're not able to take that and move it, to where we can store it, even existing storage, we will 
be in a world of hurt because there's no there's no slow release of that water using snowpack. So I think there's a huge opportunity um, for investment in being able to move water around the state. And again, this is infrastructure, but it's also using our existing infrastructure to make sure that we are as flexible as we can be. I think that is the 21st century thinking is being able to be responsive to that precipita- precipitation change. And I think, um, I you know, from from the state water projects analyses within their specific regions, and we are just 27 public water agencies and there's hundreds in California, for the most part, investment in the California water fix is the cheapest mechanism for them. And that's why they've been working on this project for 15 years. So I think, um, but they're also working on these local projects too. So I think each project has its own merits, but in terms of conveying what we know will be precipitation, we're going to have a lot more seasons looking like this with big, huge flows through the Delta. Can we move a portion of that water? That's what we're trying to do. Uh, Heather, anything you'd want to add to what we just heard? Yeah, I, as you, I think, noted earlier, but I think bears were bears uh, mentioning, too, is is there was a proposal for sort of two uh, conveyance systems. Uh, Governor uh, Newsom had announced he would be looking at a single conveyance system. So there is a lot of debate mm-hmm. around how big do you size this? Um, and, and there is a lot of concern, frankly, that, yes, this may be being sold as an opportunity to just take a big gulp in these wet years. But there is a lot of concern from folks who think this is just an opportunity to take more out of the out of out of the out of the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many of those groups are really advancing, I think, some of these local sources that I had mentioned, the, the stormwater capture, reuse and efficiency as an opportunity to actually take less water out of these systems in, in, in average years so that it does give them a better chance to recover. And uh, Jennifer, what would you say to that? I mean, is, is there a concern that we may be transferring more water than we really have to give out of the Delta? Um, I don't think so, because I think what we need to be looking at is really when are the fish there? What is the ecosystem function that the water is doing? And we need to protect that. And that's not how our current rules work. They're very rigid and they're very 20, 20th century. They're not taking into account actual conditions. And that's what we need to do in order to both meet the water supply needs of the state and protect the Delta's fragile ecosystem, and we are very committed to both. All right. Well, uh, I do want to get to some of the longer-term outlook for California. Uh, Even in this rainy year, we may be getting a, a little bit of a misconception about what our prognosis is on the waterfront. Really quickly, before we get to that, though, I do want to touch on um, some of the uh, urban issues uh, that, Heather, you brought up earlier. Tell us about what cities could be doing to be making more use of the water that they're getting and, as you said, letting less polluted water wash out of them. Great. I'm glad we're circling back on that because I think it is a very important topic. Um, because our urban areas are, are growing, in fact, uh, and so we need to be thinking about how are we going to meet these needs. And, and the good news is there's lots of opportunities. Um, first is around efficiency. Uh, we still uh, have a lot of old, inefficient water-wasting appliances and fixtures in our homes and businesses. Um, old toilets that use six gallon per flush rather than the, the new standard that use one, 1.28 gallons per flush. So it's huge savings opportunities there with clothes washers dishwasher, showers, leaks in our homes. We lose a lot of water to leaks, frankly. So lots of opportunities there, even leaks in the water distribution system. Um, So on the efficiency side, a a lot, and particularly let's look outside. (laughs) Half of our water use in urban areas is for landscapes. Uh, And 
we are, you know, the de facto standard around landscapes tends to be lawns. Those use a tremendous amount of water. We can be putting in much more climate appropriate plants um, that use less water, create urban habitat, even in some cases sequester carbon if, if, if they're done properly. Um, so a lot of opportunity around efficiency, um, stormwater capture, as I mentioned, um, water, you know, we've paved over mm -hmm. a lot of our potential areas for capturing that water. We treated it really as a liability, right? Mm -hmm. It was all about channelizing it, putting it uh, outside of the community as quickly as, as possible to avoid flooding. Well, increasingly communities are realizing that this is an asset. This is something we need to capture. We can use it directly. We can slow it down, use it to recharge underground. There's a water supply benefit, a water quality benefit, a flood control benefit. So a, a lot of opportunity there. And then, of course, there's reuse, right? Again, our communities were designed. We use water once, we discharge it. And for coastal communities, they're discharging it into the ocean where it's polluting. <laughs> you know, the ocean doesn't want our sort of nutrient-laden fresh water. That's, that's not what it wants. So if we're capturing and reusing that water, uh, there is an opportunity, again, to provide a water quality benefit to our oceans and, and boost our supplies. We just heard in Los Angeles just two weeks ago, uh, they announced that they're going to be recycling 100% of their wastewater by 2035. That's a that's a great that's an ambitious goal. Uh, very delighted that they have sort of announced that more communities need to be taking that sort of forward-looking approach. To round things out uh, before we wrap up this conversation, one of the reasons that I wanted to have this conversation is because it is really easy to get a sense of complacency when there is so much water all around us. But I think that the message is from a lot of water officials in the state right now is that conservation needs to become a way of life every year in California. Uh, so, Jennifer, just to, in that frame of mind, even in a wet year like this, what should Californians be keeping in mind about their water future and what sorts of steps, even in a year like this, uh, should either uh, individual water consumers or the state as a whole be taking? You know, I think we just need to think about the, the what I think is the fact that California is in a perpetual drought for here on out for as long as we're going to know, be alive, and every once in a while we're going to get a flood, like, you know, not this year. And so we need to not just be, again, taking advantage of being able to take, capture some of that water to protect ourselves against those drought conditions that are going to be very prevalent. And that means what Heather was talking about, permanent changes around landscaping, permanent behavior changes, thinking about your water use and trying to reduce it um, with, you know, showers, landscaping, leaks, um, appliances, et cetera. And I was really shocked. I tweeted the other day a, um, a graphic showing last year's drought monitor on California, which showed pretty much the whole state in drought, and then now pretty much the entire state out of drought. And I said, you know, this can flip back in another season. And the reaction to that was really surprising. Some people were very upset about that, of how dare I say, you know, that this isn't wet enough to help us through next year. Um, and others, I think, were really on board. And I think um, we need to think about how we help people understand that those behavioral changes, um, whether they're regulated or voluntary, are really what we all need to be doing. And um, and I, I just think that's going to be a, a huge shift into the future. And I, I do think there's been a lot of mental shift that happened during the last major, major drought a couple years ago. Um, but we definitely got a lot more to do to get people to understand that that may be more normal than just a once-in-a-lifetime event. Yeah, and Heather, what would you hope that people are keeping in mind and maybe understand better about California's water future? Well, I, I think just 
kind of picking up on that point. I mean, I think the era of, you know, water is something that the water utility or the government does is, 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 is over. I mean, the fact of the matter is a lot of the solutions that we need to implement are solutions that you and I and, and everyone listening needs to, needs to do. Um, it, it, these are the, the behavioral changes, changing out our landscapes, changing out our appliances, rethinking how we're using water. Um, those are all things that we need to do. So we all need to step up in order to make water more sustainable in California. This is not something that someone else is going to do. It's something that we all need to do. All right. And we're going to let that be the closing point for today. We have been speaking to Heather Cooley, who directs research at the Pacific Institute, as well as Jennifer Pierre, who is the general manager uh, for the state water contractors. Heather and Jennifer, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to KCBS's In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into some of the major trends shaping the news here in the Bay Area and beyond. Today, we're taking on the flood of water-related news that's been breaking in recent weeks. So far, we've been talking about what California will have to do to meet its water needs in the years and decades to come. But now, we're going to address a much more immediate question. That being, are we in for another bad fire season? Now, if you're like me, you may have been hoping that with California all waterlogged and soggy, it might be just a little bit more fire-resistant when fire season rolls around. Well, then, also like me, you might be a little disappointed when you hear what our next guest has to say. My name is Alan Taylor. I'm a professor of geography at Penn State University. Professor Taylor and a team of other researchers studied the historic link between rain and fire activity going back hundreds of years. For that, they turned to the record left behind by tree rings. And it shows that that relationship between wet years and fire activity has sort of broken down. So uh, before 1900, there had never been a wet extremely wet year with high fire activity before. But after 1900, the relationship weakened, and by the 1970s, it disappeared entirely. So now an extra rainy season gives no assurance whatsoever that the fire season will be any more tame. We had a very wet uh, winter in 2016-17, and we had this massive fire activity. That's, That's never happened, and so what's seems to be occurring is, is that it's getting so warm in the in the summer now it's overriding the moisture which comes in the winter um, and uh, that makes everything more fire prone all right so let's start back further in the historical record to take a look at how the weather and the fire used to work together in California. So it looks like before the 20th century, things used to work a little bit differently. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, it sort of works like you'd think. Um, When it was very wet, uh, it would reduce fire activity. And when it was very dry, vegetation and fuels would dry out sufficiently so that vegetation could carry fire. Uh, and that's been the relationship that you see going back for hundreds, even even thousands of years. Uh, and when uh, the 49ers came and then when fire suppression began to be implemented, we were we basically began to override that relationship because we're very good at putting fires out. Um, and, uh, and, and so we're, we put them out in wet years, we put them out in dry years, and so that 
relationship between wet uh, and no fire and dry and high fire um, basically doesn't hold anymore. And during the last few years, uh, large fire activity is is related to very extreme conditions um, where you have high winds and high temperatures, and that uh, those fires get away because uh, we can't basically control them when conditions are bad. And so if they happen during an extremely wet year, they're going to get away uh, and, and create the kind of conditions we saw in 2017. Um, and so we, we have a, a fundamentally different sort of situation going on now and have to uh, pay attention to that. How much hotter has it gotten in California in recent decades? It's about a degree and a half. It's, it's gone up in the last uh, 50 to 80 years, something like that. So there was a time where it was not hot enough in California where you could get through an average summer and a lot of that moisture would be left in? That's right, and and it's it's a it's not a, a, a linear sort of relationship. Uh, temperature, you know, if you you think of uh, sort of uh, plant uh, moisture in a plant, uh, temperature has a more of an influence on the loss of moisture from the plant than the amount of water that goes into it. So if you measure drought, and this is just a, if, uh, one of the the, um, the indexes that farmers look at for how, how dry it is, is is like a drought index, the Palmer drought index. It's a combination of soil moisture and temperature. Temperature has a, a much higher effect on that index than moisture does. <laughs> so if you raise temperature a little bit, it increases drought more than if you add this a little bit more water. And so then how does the extra fuel load change that equation even more? Well, that's right. Uh, it's because we've been putting fires out so well, we just have so much dry vegetation. And, and once it once it begins to burn uh, under extreme conditions, which is, you know, how is, uh, fire suppression has basically been so effective that the only time firefighters can't put a fire out is when it's burning under extreme conditions. And so if once something is burning under extreme conditions, it has the... Uh, chance to really get away. And that's why we're getting these really big fires, because they're getting away. <laughs> Can't do anything about it, because it's so hot, so dry, so windy. We can put it, we can put out 99.9% .9 of the fires, but that 0.1% we can are the ones that we're seeing all over the landscape. And, um, you know, all that dry fuel is just making them more severe and more damaging. Now, I, I just got to imagine we're going to have a lot of listeners listening at home right now that are going to be really disappointed to, to hear this research. Uh, I mean, myself included, was really hoping that we could just kind of take a sigh of relief, look forward to, well, that's one thing I don't have to worry about this year. But it sounds like based on what you're saying, you know, still something we need to worry about and still something that, uh, regardless of the wet weather, really needs some concerted action and, and, and attention on any year here in California. Yeah, that's right. I mean, a hot summer can just uh, really dry things out to the point that the the wet win the, the echo of the wet winter is is gone. So it's uh, it's 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 uh, a little a little uh, we weren't expecting that at all. Could climate scientists get together and maybe make a paper that's just full of good news on climate? We could use some of that right about now. I think. Yeah. The uh, and and the good news is there there are ways to approach you know managing your environment or being aware of it so that you can reduce the kind of risk you can't you can't make it risk free but you know certainly it, it's I understand your <laughs> perspective there but uh, 
you know, we can manage vegetation, right? Yeah. We will take that as a sliver of a silver lining for today. Uh, we have been speaking today to Alan Taylor. He is a professor of geography at Pennsylvania State. Uh, Alan Taylor, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yep, thank you. You've been listening to KCBS's In-Depth. Remember, you can find past episodes of the program online by heading over to kcbsradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for the program today. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Thanks for tuning in. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9. KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app.